Luke 16, the passage that Ted read for us. As you are turning there, I want to let you know a little bit of uh, what's going to happen this summer with our summer uh, teaching. You know, as we've been studying Luke, I've gotten many questions from you. Some have come up after the service, gotten email questions, and a lot of really good questions have come up as a result of going through this gospel together. And so what I was thinking is that it probably would be a good idea to spend some time in the summer answering some of those questions. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you an opportunity, as, as we've been processing together, Luke or maybe other studies or other things that have come as a result of what we've studied here in Luke. But if a question has come to your mind uh, as a result of what we studied uh, on any really issue, whether it's an application kind of question or, or an understanding kind of a question, I'd love for you to write that question down, and, uh, and we have a way for you to do that, and, and to submit that question. What we're going to do, starting in uh, June, June 23rd, is uh, we're going to spend six weeks just answering those questions, and giving you an opportunity to really make sure that we're not moving past maybe issues or thoughts or, or roadblocks you might have in your mind as we've gone through this. So there's three ways you can submit your questions. There's a table in the back, or back that has a, a card where you could write out your question. You can also do it with inside your bulletin. You'll see there's an email address you can email it to, and also on the Facebook page, there's a way you could submit the questions as well. But I want to just open it up, and for the next couple weeks, if you're able to uh, think of a question that's come up that you'd like to have answered, we're going to collect them all and then group them together and probably like-minded kind of questions, and then spend a few weeks in the summer just answering them. So I'm excited about that. I, I always want to make sure we're growing together. And sometimes when there's lots of questions that come my way, I always feel for one person who asked the question, there's 10 people who haven't asked that same question. So, so when I start noticing a fair amount of questions coming, I start really, it's probably a good, good idea to stop and make sure we're all tracking together. So uh, please think through your questions. The only thing I would ask you not to do is don't do the stump the pastor questions. You know, can God make a rock so big that he can't pick it up? You know, those kind of things. So this is not stump the pastor time. This is, you know, ask a, unless that's really a legitimate question. Then we'll meet one-on-one -on, -one on that. So. so we are looking here this morning in uh, Luke chapter 16, a, a parable that uh, Ted read for us. But before we begin our study, would you just uh, bow your head with me? Let's just open our time in a word of prayer. Father, I now thank you that we get to gather to be un, in your word and under your word, to have this wash through our minds and our hearts. And so, God, may this time now change us. May it give us hope. May it give us strength. May it build us up that we might walk in the strength and the power that you provide. So thank you, God, for this moment that we have. May it truly, truly conform us to be better worshipers of you and to live for your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I want to begin, speaking of questions, I want to begin by asking you a question this morning. And it is a very important question. In fact, I might, you might sound like I'm overstating my case here, but I might say it might be the most important question you've been asked all year could be the most important question you will be asked all of this year, and possibly, if I want to start to overstate it, your whole life. Okay, So big question. 
And I want to ask you this question because it is a very important question. It's a question that is to get you to search down to the very core of who you are so that you would begin to understand the reason why you exist. Now, I want to ask you this question because what this question will do, if you answer it honestly and then deal honestly with the answer, I believe what it will do is radically change your world. It is a question that I've come up with as a result of reflecting on our study of Luke. Luke has surprised me in one sense. I knew we'd learn a lot about Christ. I had read Luke a lot and studied Luke a lot, but just it, this particular season of going through it, it has challenged me in a way that I never really thought about before uh, and, and, and in a very powerful way. And I realized this gospel brings us to a very central question. And it's a question that if you answer it, correctly or honestly and you deal with it honestly will radically change your life okay now whenever i do these like long setups to questions i know some of you get pressure like just answer that question so here's the question okay you ready this is the question what do you live for that's the question now i want to make sure you understand the question i didn't ask who do you live for because some of you might answer that question, what do you mean, what do I live for? I get up every day, take care of my kids, and I got to work, and I got to take care of my boss, and I got to take care of this person, and everybody's got to draw on my life. You know, no, I'm not asking who, the who question. What I want to know in the very deep down recesses of your life, what is it that you ultimately want out of life? What do you live for? If you can honestly answer that question, it will radically transform your life. Have you ever met people? I know you have. You, you, we've all met people. seem like they have it all together. It seems like everything is just going great in their life. And sometimes you can look at people like that and you think, man, alive, look at them. Nothing seems to bother them. You know, they don't have my life. They don't have my world, right? I mean, it's easy. You can compare yourself to people and then kind of take on the good martyr clothes. Like, oh, my life. I, you don't have no idea the problems, right? And you can kind of feel that way sometimes. And there are people who seem to walk through life content. And when I was thinking about people that I've met who are really content, legitimately content, believers who are content, I have realized something. I stop and realize, you know what? They live in the same world I live in, right? There are three things we're always dealing with when we live in the world. I've mentioned this a lot. We live in the fact that we live in a fallen world, so everything breaks and nothing works right and Nothing ever satisfies. God removed the meaning from the stuff of this world. So, so no matter how much you have, you're never satisfied. We live in a world full of sinners, which means everybody you know is going to let you down. Everyone you know is going to hurt you. Everyone you know is going to do something wrong. And we all live in that world. And we deal with our own sin. We're going to do dumb things. We're going to let ourselves down. Now, every human being lives in a fallen world. Every human being lives in a world full of sinners, and every human being is a sinner. So why do some people seem to go through life content, and it works for them, and other people seem to be shrouded in problems? It can't be the external circumstances. It can't be. I cannot look at someone's life 
and say, well, they have it better than me because they live in the same fallen world and everyone they're married to and all their children are sinners and they themselves are sinners. No, all of us live in the exact same world, right? We have to, we've got to start there. We all live in the same world. Yet some people seem to be content while others aren't. Why? The answer comes down to this one question. What do you live for? What do you live for? Silly illustration of this point. Could you imagine if you went and came into your house and you realized your house was broken into and you were trying to figure out what was stolen and what you discover is that there was only one thing stolen in your house, your disposable razors. Okay, I know it's dumb, okay. Now how upset would you be? You'd be like, whew, just a, and you discover there's the disposable razor bandit running around, breaking into people's houses, stealing disposable razors. Now, that absolutely wouldn't bother you, other than maybe creeped out that somebody's in your house. But it wouldn't bother you, right? Because I have never met a soul who lives for disposable razors. I never have. I've never met one person who said, man, I just cannot wait to get another disposable razor. I can't even throw them away. I've got millions of them in my house. I just love them. Got pictures are framed along the wall. This was the first one I ever used. It's the first one that ever cut me. You know, like, right? So no one lives that way. You see, what you live for determines how hurt you're going to get, how destroyed you're going to get. If you lived for disposable razors, when they got stolen, you would be destroyed, right? You see, what you live for determines how content you'll be, and it will determine how you will react when that thing gets touched in the world. Because we all live in a sinful world surrounded by sinners and we ourselves sin. So we get down to the core. What do you live for? The reason why I'm asking this question is we are here at this parable in Luke 16. We're in the middle of a thought and we'll set the context in a moment of this thought. But as we've been going through this, Jesus tells this very important parable that brings us to the core of what do you live for. He's basically zeroing in down on this issue. What owns your heart? How do you view the temple world versus how do you view the eternal world? What do you live for? And this passage is going to help us understand and reveal for us what the real kingdom value is in terms of what we live for. We're either living for this world or we're living for God. That's the bottom line. And if we live for this world, when we deal with the fallenness of the world, or we deal with the fallenness of the people around us, or we deal with our own fallenness, we will go through life angst and depressed and, you know, discontent. Is that the word? Yeah, discontent. We'll go through life that way. If we live for the kingdom of God, then this world has no grip on us. And everything's a big razor. Doesn't matter if you steal it. Doesn't matter. So we're going to look at this today. So we're looking at this, this parable. When Ted read it, I'm sure you probably went, this is a weird parable. It seems strange. Got this guy doing unethical things, the master approving of these unethical things. It's a strange parable. But we'll look at it. We'll set the context. But, but what I want you to recognize 
is that really the essence of this parable is, what do you live for? What do you live for? And the essence of this parable is saying, you better answer that question now. That's the point. You better answer this question now. So we've got two points. I've divided the, this thing into two, two points to help us navigate our way through it. We have the parable, which is there's an urgency here. A day of reckoning is coming, right? It's a very big day, but we'll see this. And then we have the point of the parable, which is Jesus is saying, but this better get your attention. You better answer this question now. This is important. My heart for you, what I've been praying for for you, for myself, is that we would have the honesty to answer that question today. That in the midst of everything, we'd be able to break it all down and say, God, I'm willing to answer this question before you honestly. What do I live for? So that I can begin the process of the hope and the healing that comes when you shed living for the wrong things and begin to live for the right things. So I'm hoping that you walk out of here hopeful by the end of this. So let's go through it. Let's look at the parable. Look at the first part of verse 1. It will help us understand this context. It says, he also said to the disciples. So we have to just stop and just recognize that word also in there as the ESV has it. The reason why I want to recognize that is 16 is not a new thought. We looked at chapter 15 last week. Jesus has been, uh, if you remember, he, he was eating with these and hanging out with these tax gatherers and sinners and the Pharisees and the scribes got all bent out of shape. How dare he defile, you know, holiness and eat with these people and and jesus goes out and he says guys do you realize something i am on a mission to seek and to save the lost this is where the joy of the father is god rejoices when a when a sinner repents in fact he rejoices more when a sinner repents than he does by the fact that you don't hang out with sinners he just loves this if you don't get this about god you miss it and in the course of explaining this he then says to his disciples, and that's the context here. Now he's saying, now guys, here's what I want you to catch from this. And he knows when he speaks this, he's in earshot of the Pharisees. And as the text unfolds, you'll we'll see the Pharisees entering in in weeks to come. But this is his application. And I would even go so far as to say that chapter 16 actually begins to apply everything we've been learning from chapter 12, 13, 14, and 15. This is just where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. This is where he drives it home. Here's his application point. And he gives his application in a parable. Let's look at the parable. There was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. A straightforward story. You got a rich guy, got all kinds of business dealings. He has a manager over those business dealings. And it turns out that this rich guy had a lot of money, and the manager, instead of being overseeing these dealings, he was just squandering the money, running around on his boss's expense account, going out for dinners the boss didn't approve of, doing all kinds of stuff, squandering stuff. But it's only so long before your boss figures out that you're squandering the resources, and he calls him in and he says, Hey, man. Basically, you're fired, man. You better bring me the books and, uh, because this is it. You're at the end. You're not going to be my manager. Now, this is a crisis. You've got to enter into the crisis of the story, so let me set it for you here. 
simple. I think you can figure out what the crisis is. The guy's losing his job. Now, don't think about it in our context, right? If you lost your job, the first place you'd go to is unemployment, probably, maybe. Or you'd maybe start working your networks for other jobs. In that day, basically, if you lost your job, it was really hard to get another job. Really hard. So you had two options once you lost your job. Option number one was become a slave, do manual labor. Option number two, become a beggar. It's basically it. So this guy has faced this moment where, where the manager is saying, I have given you a lot of stuff, and instead of taking that stuff and using it the way I wanted you to use it, you used it for yourself, and now a day of reckoning is coming. I'm holding you accountable for how you've used this stuff. You're going to lose it all. Now, for a moment here, we cannot lose the imagery of this. This manager is representing these scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees had been given the law of God. They'd been given responsibility to shepherd Israel. And they wasted it. They squandered it. They set it all aside. And Jesus is saying a day of reckoning is coming. And you know what? He's been saying this all along. This is the urgency of this text, and this is the urgency that should stir our hearts as well. He's been saying this all along. In fact, I've just got a few passages I want to read where Jesus has been saying, listen, guys, this is important. This is what I want you to do. And if you're not going to do it, I'm going to send you to hell. If you're not going to do it, you're not going to go to heaven. If you're not going to do what I'm saying, this is over for you. Right? He's been laying this out over and over and over again. And this story is an illustration of it. But let's just review what Jesus has been saying over and over again. Look at Luke 12. It'll be up on the screen behind me. Luke 12, 8 and 9. Jesus said, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Right? You are either all in with Jesus. And you're willing to identify and live for him and his purposes and who he is and make him known. Or you're not going to heaven. First harsh statement. Look at Luke 12, 42 through 48. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give him the portion of the food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and eat and drink and get drunk. The master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour that he does not know and will cut him into pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act to his will will receive a severe beating. The one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will get a light beating. And everyone who much was given of him, much will be required. From him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. Right? He's saying, do you understand? I've, I've given you my word. I've revealed my will. This is what I want. If you don't do it, I'm going to cut you to pieces and send you to hell. Powerful statement, right? Jesus. Luke 13, Jesus says another one. Someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to him, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence and taught in your streets. 
But he would say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. He said it again in Luke 14. Now great cows accompany him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me, does not hate his own father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. See, he's been saying this over and over again. You are either all in or you're all out. This is what I want from you. And if you, if you will not come to this, then you cannot be my disciple. That's, that's the whole context for this story. The manager is this one who's heard these words. He won't do it. He will not do what the master wants. And now the day of reckoning has come. Okay, so let's see what happens to this guy. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master's taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. Right? Right? I, I can't do this labor thing. I can't be a slave and I'm way too prideful to be a, a beggar. I have nothing. He's going to die. No one's going to feed him got nothing where's he gonna go it's a serious situation that's the point of the story this man is facing a life or death moment what does he do when he faces it so let's look at how he handles it now mind you he's an unjust servant and as we read this this is got to catch this especially business guys every businessman pay attention this is a parable not a proverb on business practices, okay? This is not designed to say, take notes. This is how you do business. This is a parable, and we'll see the parable here, but, but recognize this. Notice what the guy does. I have I've decided what to do. He's thinking to himself, I, decide, I know what I'm going to do. So that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, 100 measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down, and quickly write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, 100 measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. So the guy says, right, manager says to himself, I know what to do. Basically, he's going to rip off his owner some more because <laughs> the guy is not going to get everything he deserves. But I'm going to make these guys indebted to me. I'll go there before I lose my job. I'll, use, I'll leverage my position, and I'll get these guys to pay less, right? They're going to want to do this deal because they're not going to have to pay all that they owe the master. But on top of it, the ultimate quid pro quo, the ultimate this for that. I do this for you. Maybe when I lose my job, you're going to take pity and take me in. He's totally manipulating the situation. He's about ready to lose his job. So his conniving mind comes up with a plan to get these guys to maybe give him a job, take him in, help him out. Okay? He's a conniver. How does this thing play out? Look at verse 8. Here's the part of the story that throws everybody off, right? The master, verse 8, first part of verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, normally, you would think the parable would read, and the master came in and beat him even more because he ripped off his master. We're not used to 
sinful, conniving, manipulating behavior being rewarded. Right? Now, there are many people, they try to soften this parable up by saying, well, actually, all the manager was doing was saving his master. Because, you see, his master probably charged interest, and the Jewish law says there was no interest, so he was removing the interest payment and just making people pay the principal back. So he was acting in a really upright manner and helping people out. I read that in several different things this week, and my response was, that's not right. Because you wouldn't use the word shrewdness there. Right? right? He's called a dishonest manager. And he's acting cunningly. Normally, if you're going to come up and, and tell me about how I've handled my own finances, if you were to go, shrewd, <laughs> that's probably not good. You know? you know, that doesn't lead you into confidence with the IRS. Hey, I got a really shrewd deal going. I'm really cunning, right? You know you're on the edge with that kind of practice. So the words here are telling us the guy did something wrong, and the master said, hey, pretty shrewd, pretty cunning for a dishonest master. You're right, you know, for a dishonest manager, you're about ready to lose your job. You know what? That's probably the only way you're going to get yourself a job. Commended him. Now, we have to let this thing sit in an uncomfortable way in order for the point Jesus is going to make to make sense. But here's the parable. The day of reckoning came, and this sinner responded with urgency. Here's the parable. When all the warning came, hey, you're about ready to lose it all, the first thing this guy did is he went into action. That's what you need to catch. Now let's get to the point. Let's get to the point. Jesus now offers in the rest of this verse the explanation of the parable. Here's his teaching point. Look at it. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Now just pause and think about what he's saying there. Theologically, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. Here's the point. He's saying this. In fact, let me give you the less than paraphrase. This is how I would paraphrase this verse. Even sinners in the world who are living for this world understand that when you're about to lose everything, you better act quickly. Yet, when the religiously lost hear the news over and over again that they're about to lose everything, they do nothing. That's his point. I read all those passages for a reason. Jesus has been saying over and over and over and over again, you have got to be all in. You're either all in or you're all out. You've got to live for my kingdom. If you're not living for my kingdom and you're living for your own self and your own pleasure, it's not a good place. Over and over and over again. And religiously lost people go, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, right, right. Just, just be quiet. He's saying, think about it. What does a sinner do when he's told he's about ready to lose his job? Right? What does the average pagan do who knows nothing of God? He's living for his own flesh, doing his own thing. When he hears he's about ready to lose his job, he does whatever he can to get another job. He lies, he cheats, he steals, he manipulates because he knows that losing your job is a bad thing. 
Now he's saying if a sinner can act when they hear this news, why wouldn't somebody who claims to be following God feel a sense of urgency when they've heard all the things that I just read to them? How can people sit passively by and have it not impact them? To be able to hear something like that and then to go back and live for yourself all week. How can this happen? There's his point. So, what should be then the response? He's saying there should be some response to everything I've said. What should be going on in the heart, right? What does the sinner, what does a dishonest manager do? Well, he operates in a dishonest manner quickly to get himself another job. What should a son of light do, a child of the light? How should they respond when they hear everything Jesus just said? Jesus said there should be three responses. And that's the rest of this, these verses. There should be three responses. Right? When you hear these news, the worst thing to do is just to pick up where you left off with your week. You don't want to hear these kind of things as just a temporary 40-minute pause of your life and then boop, pick up with the rest of your agenda. When you hear what Jesus says, it should radically cause you to say, wait a minute, what am I living for? What am I living for? It should drive you there to ask that question. So he says, okay, there should be three responses. The first response is found there in verse 9, and it's this. You should use the temporal to serve the eternal. Look at verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, honestly, when you first hear that or read that, don't you go, what? What in the world does that mean? Right? It's fair. Some of you are looking down like, I don't want to admit I have no clue what that means. No, it's okay. The first time I read it, I went, what? What is he saying? But just pause and think about it. This is all tying into the story. The first thing this guy did when he was about ready to lose his job was he began to make friends with other businessmen so that he could get their favor when he lost his job. Jesus is pulling on that imagery. But we've got to place the imagery not in a manipulative sense. We have to place the imagery in the context of Luke chapter 15 and 16. This whole incident begins with Jesus eating and fellowshipping with tax gatherers and sinners. He's out there engaging the lost with the purpose of bringing the news of the gospel so that they might get saved. He's on a mission to see the saved, or to see the lost get saved. This is what he's living for. So now the image is this. He's saying this. He's saying, okay, now here's the deal. Here's what I want you to get. I tell you, make friends with your unrighteous wealth. What does that mean, make friends by means of unrighteous wealth? Well, he's saying this. First of all, the word wealth there isn't just money. It's actually the word mammon, which means whatever possessions you have. And the reality of the possessions of this world, the reason why he calls them unrighteous, is the possessions of this world, whatever they are, house, car, money, Freedom, security, job, space, whatever. 
any, any provision of this world. It's all unrighteous. Two things. Number one, it cannot save you. And number two, it will not be in heaven with you. It, 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 so it's absolutely worthless to live for my own pleasure. It's worthless to live for my own desires. It's worthless to live for money. It's worthless to live for freedom. It's worthless to live for the ideal uh, schedule, the ideal life. It's worthless to live for the ideal whatever. Because one day you will die. And it does nothing for you. So he says, take that temporal stuff, whatever it is that God has given you, and use it to invest to the lost. So that they might hear the news of the kingdom of God and be saved. Because then when you go to heaven, the house you have will be here and turn to dust. And the car you have will be here and turns to rust. And, and the money you had will be given away to people who won't care about your desires. And, 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 the, and the space and the freedom you have won't exist anymore. But what will be in heaven? All of those people that you invested into. And the picture he's painting is you walking into heaven and all these people surrounding you saying, man, God used you in a huge way. God used you and I'm here now. Saying, there is how you should be thinking. False teachers do something that's very dangerous. False teachers like to take the eternal and make it serve the temporal. And you got to listen for that. Right? If you pray this prayer, then God will bless you this way on earth. And so if you want that blessing... So what happened? What's serving what? The, the eternal serving the temporal. He's saying, no, don't think of it that way. Flip it around. The temporal exists to serve the eternal. If you want to live for something, live for the eternal. Don't obsess about the sinfulness of your family member or the sinfulness of your car or the sinfulness of your boss or the fact that no one start obsessing with the fact that the person next door to you is on their way to hell and whatever resources you have invest into that i guarantee to you the sinfulness of everyone around you will turn into big razors you won't care you won't care when suddenly these people who are on their way to hell begin to matter we're caught up when we're caught up in the temporal world we will forever be discontent because it's sinful it cannot satisfy so he's saying listen use the temple whatever you have invest it then he gives the essence of it when he says so that when it fails so that when it fails, they may receive you. He's saying this, it will fail. Your spouse will let you down. Your children will let you down. Your job will let you down. Your house will break. Your car will be destroyed. Your space will be taken away from you. You will have not the freedom you want to have. And even if God gave you all of that, everything that you're dreaming about in your life, it will not satisfy because we live in a fallen world surrounded by sinners and we ourselves are sinners. So it will fail us. And when we die, it will prove that it will fail us because our house, our car, our stuff cannot 
keep us from death, right? The answer to life isn't better, get a better car and you'll get through that. No, it will fail you. But then if you've invested into the eternal kingdom and when you're translated from this life into the next and all the people that are there that were blessed through you, they'll say, man, welcome home. Welcome home. Right? That's a great picture, isn't it? So, souls are eternal. Your fleshly desires are not. Remember that. Okay. So it gives us the first application. Use the temporal to serve the eternal. Second application. Be faithful with what you have. If you're really going to hear Jesus, he's saying now be faithful with what you have. The issue in life is not being discontent with what you don't have. I wish, dot, 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 whatever it is. I wish I had. I wish this person was. I wish that. No. What do you have? Be faithful with it. Notice what he says in verse 10. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have, been, if, if you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Now, whether you know it or not, Jesus is addressing three reactions you can have to the previous point. There are three excuses we come up with when we're challenged with the point that we're supposed to use the temporal to serve the eternal. And there might what I would call three families of excuses that he's addressing. The first excuse is, I don't have enough. I don't have enough. I, I don't have, you know, you talk about taking the, the, the temporal and, uh, and serving the, uh, the eternal. I don't have, you know, if God would provide me some temporal, I'd use it. But I don't have any temporal. Right? People, people have that thought. So what does he say? One who is faithful in very little is faithful in much. It's not the volume. It's not the volume, it's what you have. Greatest illustration of that verse for me was my own father. I cannot tell you how many times growing up I was brought to our church. My dad could fix everything. Right? One of those guys just could do it all. You know, from pouring concrete to electricity, building, anything. And so, anything that broke in the church, he fixed it for free. And everything. He'd, we'd wax the floors. He just, he just was constantly doing stuff. And he'd always say this, you know, especially, uh, my memory is I always had a good attitude when I went with him. Like, I, I remember it like, I'd be like, great, I'm going to go with dad. But I think he remembers it slightly differently, that I didn't always have a good attitude, because I could remember him saying this to me, and the only reason why I could, that he'd be saying it to me is because of my attitude. He would say, you know, Steve, God did not provide me with a, with a lot of money. We weren't, I didn't grow up in a rich home, very, you know, not a lot of money. He said, but I do have skills. And I, I want to use those skills for the kingdom. I do have time. So I want to use those time. Whatever we have, I want to use it. Right? So we didn't have a lot of cash. We didn't have a lot of resources. We couldn't give a lot of money. We couldn't give a lot of gifts to the church. We couldn't buy sound systems or things like that. But what we could do is when the basement flooded, we could go there and not only get the water out, but we could go down there and figure out what's making it flood and patch up walls and give our time and our talents and and all of that. And Jesus is saying, listen, don't, don't stop and think about what you don't have. 
Ask yourself this question. What little you have been given, are you using it? And if you're not using it, why do you think I would give you more? I'm giving you temporal to serve the eternal. I'm not giving you temporal to serve the temporal. The end goal of the temporal is not that you become earthly satisfied. The end goal of me giving you the temporal is that more people would know my name. So why would I give you more? So second excuse that comes up. Here's the second excuse that comes up. Some people say, I'm not gifted. I don't have the ability to do it. I don't, I don't have all of the, the, the spiritual riches that are needed to invest into the kingdom, right? You, you start kind of tearing yourself down. Verse 11, he says, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? Right? I might have only given you a $20,000 a year job. That's all I'm asking you to be responsible for. Do you think I'm going to invest into you this incredible amount of spiritual responsibility? You can't even be faithful with that. See, Jesus is bringing it down. What do you have now? Do you live for it? Or will you be willing to use it as an investment for the kingdom? If you're living for it, Jesus said, you're going to be marginalized. Third excuse. Third excuse is this. Well, I need to get things in order in my personal life before I can think about giving to others and doing this thing. But Jesus says, if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Now, what's he saying? What's he getting at? Best way to understand this point and this, this complaint is to put it in an illustration. I have met many people who have grown in resentment towards their bosses. Okay? They've grown in resentment. And they say, oh, yeah, easy for my boss. They have all this money. It's not fair. And, and they grow in resentment. They resent the fact that somebody has more than them. They resent the fact that somebody's in a better place economically than them. And they work for them, and so they develop an attitude, and they begin to start getting hard-hearted towards that attitude. Now, Jesus is saying this. Listen, even before I give you your own wealth, and even before I give you your own spiritual riches to begin to see kind of really exponential growth, I'm asking you to be faithful with something that doesn't even belong to you. I'm just asking you to serve other people, to work for other people. And if you can't even work for someone else with a good attitude and a servant's heart, do you really think you're going to get blessed? So he's paring it down. And he's taking away the excuses, and what he's saying is this. You have, right now, everything you need to invest into the kingdom of God. You lack nothing. The issue isn't what you don't have. The issue isn't what this person has. The issue isn't their marriage is better, or their life is better, or their house is better, or their resource. You have what God feels you need to be faithful with now. So he says, don't live for it. Invest it. Don't live for it. Invest it. Quit taking the excuses, following the excuses. So he's saying, if you really want to be stirred, like the unrighteous guy was quick to go out and get his job, if you hear my words, the first thing it should do should cause you to say, whatever I have, I'm using it for the kingdom. And whatever I have, I'm going to be faithful with. And then he gives a third illustration or a third application. And it's simple. 
Serve God, not material things. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God, and the real word there is mammon or wealth, resources, whatever. The goal of life is not to get wealthy. The goal of life is to see people enter the kingdom of God. There's more joy in heaven when that happens than anything else. That last chapter made that clear. And whatever you've been given is given to invest into that. Now, if you are not, if, if you see all that stuff as being your end goal, right? I need my comfort. I need my space. I need my house. I need my time. I need my boundaries. I need my this, whatever it is, all the stuff you feel you need. And if that's what your existence is surrounded about, he's saying you actually can't serve God. And on top of it, you will despise God. How will you despise God? Because you see, God calls us to die to ourselves, right? And so you come in, and a problem's in your life, and we're saying, well, listen, what matters is them, not you. And you say, wait a minute, what matters is me. I despise you, God. Your agenda isn't my agenda. So he's saying, you're, gonna, you're either going to love God or hate God. But the reality is, we have to do away with the American dream of the American church that we can have both. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God together. in One wonderful little, great little harmony. Jesus is saying, you cannot do that. If you serve money, then money is what you will obsess over. If you serve your own desires, your own desires is what you will obsess over. If you serve your own agenda, your own agenda is what you obsess over. But if you serve the kingdom of God, then his name being made known everywhere all the time is what you will obsess over. So, here's what this passage, let me wrap it up here. Passage is this, there's a day of reckoning coming. I read you the verses. Jesus is saying, you're either all in or you're all out, over and over and over again. So that should get us our attention. We don't want to be like the people Jesus mentioned there by saying that hear that and just go on with their life. It should get our attention. It should cause us to say, I want to use the temple to serve the eternal. I want to be faithful with what I have. I want to serve God and not this material world. And I got to thinking, as I want to kind of wrap this up here, I got to thinking about Job. I was thinking something about Job. You know, Job lost everything, right? We know that. I mean, you think about what happened to the guy. He lost his family. He lost his wealth. He became really sick, painfully ill. His wife became a nag, and his friends became really annoying. Right? That's bad. Yet, he kept serving God. This week I kept thinking about why. I came to one conclusion. Because God is who he lived for. God's who he lived for. That's it. So you can take all this stuff away. I didn't live for it. I didn't wake up every morning saying, finally, I got my ideal home. Finally, I got my ideal family. Finally, I got my ideal this. Finally, I got my ideal that. Right? So when, when the, the, the sin and the evil of this world touched all of it, 
he could still say, I will not turn away from you, God. Because I don't live for that. I live for you. That's who I live for. So, the question we come back to, what do you live for? The hardest, most freeing question to ask yourself. It's hard because you've got to be honest, but it's freeing because if you can answer it honestly and bring it to the cross, suddenly everything becomes a big razor in life. It doesn't matter if it's touched. So how do you answer the question, what do I live for? I'm going to now give you two more questions to help you answer the one question. Okay? I'm going to give you two self-evaluating questions that are harder than that first one. So get ready. They're harder. First question is this. What makes me angry? If I want to know what I live for, if I want to know what I live for, i got to drill down into my anger. When I get frustrated with people, when I get angry with people, why? When I get down to that question, when I drill down and look at that question, I'm beginning to start seeing what I live for. Second question. What is the ideal world that you dream about that you think would be perfect? Where's that little happy place you go to? If only this, if only that, if only they, if only it, where's that happy place you go? Wherever that is, that will tell you what you live for. Now, some of you are skilled in that second question in trying to sanctify that spot, so I'm going to throw a little light on, on, your, on your manipulation. We all sanctify it by saying, you know, if I had more money, I could give more to missions. If I had more time, I could give more to the church. Okay, see, that's not sanctifying it. You fool yourself in your own brain, but just say that out loud and then read what we just read. Are you faithful with what you have is the question, not with what you want. So really, that's just a way of manipulating yourself into saying, this is what I want. So what do you live for? Drilling down on those two questions, when you get down to the core of it, the key then at that point is to say, God, I'm going to bring that and ask you to throw that away in the trash and give me a heart that beats for your kingdom that sees the temporal serving the eternal, that is content with what you've given me to serve it and use it for you so that I'm on mission for you and I don't care about everyone else. I'm just going to bring glory to you. Let me be like Joe. So I want to give you a moment to do that. Ken's going to come up here and, and play. And I'd like you just to bow your head, and you can do that now. Just bow your head. Maybe take a couple of minutes and ask yourself these two questions. What makes me angry? And what is that ideal world I dream about? And if in the center of that is you and your stuff and your agenda and your desires and your dreams and you, then realize this. There's no good end to that. So bring that to the cross and say, Jesus, I want it to be you so that when I enter glory and all this temporal stuff goes away, I'm there with you and your people for all eternity. 
So just take a moment, answer those questions, and, and do whatever business with the Lord you need to do. Father, I just come before you grateful for the freedom that comes when we're honest. The freedom that comes when we can lay before you the stuff in our hearts and, and to live for your kingdom. I think of the young people in this room, Lord. I pray that you would raise up a, a group of young people that would not get caught up in the trappings of this world, but would live for your kingdom. They would know the freedom of living for you and not for the stuff of this world. Pray, God, for those that are entrapped today with their own agenda, their own success, their own image, their own ego, their own self-worth, their own desires. Lord, may they surrender that bondage to your love and to know the freedom that it is to invest this temporal world into the eternal world. Lord, just open our eyes, not to, to see the, the problems around us in terms of people letting us down, but to open our eyes to see those around us who are perishing. Just enliven our hearts to live for that. And to find our peace in that and to, to feel that sense of urgency that we might live that way for your kingdom. Thank you, Father, for the harshness of your word for the cleansing power and the freedom and, and the joy that it brings. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.